Well, good morning. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. We are going to be beginning the final section uh, of Zechariah. Uh, if you've been with us as we've gone through it, uh, the first six verses of the book are kind of a section all in itself, a call to repentance. And then we have a series of eight visions that goes to uh, the end of chapter 6. And then after that, that's another section. After that, chapter 7 and 8, we have these questions about the fast that they had been doing while they were in captivity. Should they continue them, just to continue them? And now we start the prophetic portion, uh, strictly prophetic portion of Zechariah. There's two prophecies in this portion. Uh, one goes from 9 to the end of 11, and the other one begins again in chapter 12, verse 1, and goes to the end of the book. Um, so I don't know of any other way to do this, but we're going to read 9 through 11. We're not going to try to expound it, but we're going to read it all as a whole, that we can see the prophecy given as a whole. Because there's an interesting flow as we see uh, kind of, in a sense, a judgment poured out on the surrounding nations around Israel. We see the coming of the Lord as he comes in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We see the establishment of his kingdom, and then in chapter 11, we see a prophecy against false shepherds. Uh, we see the fact that the Lord's wages were paid out for him in 30 pieces of silver, and we see basically God turning over the children of Israel to the Antichrist, or in a sense, the, the, the foolish shepherd. Um, so in this whole portion, if you take it as a whole, uh, you would think it's kind of confusing the way it all plays out, that we would have his coming, his, the glory of his kingdom, and then the, in a sense, rejection and these wages paid out like they're finished with him. So as we go through this portion, hopefully we can see that if the children of Israel were looking at their Bibles very closely at the time, this would have been uh, 450 years before the coming of the Lord, uh, they would have noticed the same kind of strange unfolding of events, how the Lord came in the way that he came and, and, and things like that. So the question we always have for ourselves is what does a prophecy given 2,500 years ago to a group of people that we are not a part of have to do with us? How is that going to help us? What is that going to do for me Monday morning and through the rest of the week? And what we're going to try to do is understand what it meant to the children of Israel at that time try to understand the conditions of life, what they were going through, and we're going to see how the character of God works in certain conditions of human life. And then we're going to try to apply it to ourselves in what God is desiring us to do, um, what God is pleased in the things that we do, or if he's displeased, and in what manner and what character we are to live our lives. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult thing, but when we think about the privilege we have to gather together and to open the Bible and to hear from God, um, sometimes I think we take it for granted and that this is just a, a, a book and it's a historical narrative that we're reading. Um, but this is really God's opportunity to speak to us and what he would have us to do. And I hope this morning that's what you came uh, with in mind, that your minds and hearts are prepared to look and see what God is trying to tell us. So bear with us. Uh, we're going to try to read, like I say, these three chapters. They're not entirely long in of themselves, but it's still around 50 verses. So let's get going. Chapter 9, verse 1, and I'm reading from the New King James. 
the burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust, and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful, and Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he, shall be for our God, and shall be like a leader in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by, and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent you to my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. For the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goat herds. For the, flock, for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. For him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler together. They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside. For I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them, for I will redeem them, and they shall increase as they once increased. I will sow them among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children, and they shall return. 
I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the river shall dry up. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. So I will strengthen them in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cypress, for the cedar has fallen, because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. There is the sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruins. There is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of the Jordan is in ruins. Thus says the Lord, my God, feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. But indeed, I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. So I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, the one I called beauty, and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. And I took my staff, beauty, and cut it in two, that I might break the covenant which I made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Then I cut into my other staff bonds, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the Lord said to me, Next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land, who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those, that, feed those that still stand, but he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blind. All right, we trust God will add a blessing to the reading of his word. That is the entire prophecy in a whole. Like I said, chapter 12 begins another prophecy, and you can tell because it starts with the same language, the burden of the word of the Lord um, in chapter 12 there to Israel. So what do we have here? Uh, we have to understand what's going on with the children of Israel. What are they feeling? What are they going through? Why did God decide to tell them what he told them right now? Uh, what's different? Why hasn't this prophecy been given before? When was it given before? And in what manner? Maybe did the Lord reveal these things? This past week was actually a, a terrible week at work. And you, we often have weeks like that where we're laboring and we're working and we just feel like we can't get anywhere. Like It's almost like everything's working against us. And we look at our own life and we say, God, what am I doing wrong? Uh, what have I done wrong? Uh, what needs to be fixed? And we prayerfully consider these things because we are tired of the 
woes of life. Uh, we are tired of the struggles of life, and it's frustrating. And we feel weak, and we're not sure what to do, and that's when we tend to lash out in a sinful way. So for the children of Israel at this time, they got back to the land, and when they got back to the land originally, they thought life was going to be easy. They thought they were just going to build the temple, and that uh, they had all the provision, all the funds, this is what God wanted them to do, and it was going to be a simple thing. And the minute that they faced opposition, they just said to themselves, oh, well, obviously the Lord doesn't want me to build a temple. And I think sometimes we do the same thing. The minute opposition comes, it's like, oh, well, I guess the Lord doesn't want me to do this. Uh, that wasn't the case back then, and, and many times in the New Testament it's not the case, and I think in our own lives most of the time it's not the case. The Lord provided this opposition and the struggle so that all their dependence would be placed on God. And when all their dependence was placed on God and the thing succeeded, it would encourage the people more to place more of their faith and trust in God as they continued. So what we see is all these years that they thought it was just supposed to be easy, they were rebuked for it, and then they were encouraged to rebuild. So they, they got back to work. And again, I think in their minds, they think, well, now that we've repented, now that we're back on track, now that we're doing what the Lord wants us to do, now it's going to be easy. And they found that, in fact, it wasn't. Uh, they're still going to face opposition. They were still going to face pressure from the surrounding cities. And it was going to be a struggle. We see from this time all the way until the day of Nehemiah, which is 40 to 50 years future, when they're building the wall, they're building with a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other. Uh, so the opposition is still there. It, it doesn't go away. So... What we have is, as a worker, somebody that's building this temple, that's laboring for the Lord, that's facing opposition, what's the Lord going to give them to try to encourage them? And in a sense, what does the Lord give us that we should be encouraged to get through those tough weeks, to get through those weeks when it's, you just kind of want to give up, you just want to kind of throw in the towel and say, you know what, I'm done with this, and move on. I think in this case here, God is going to show them the fact that all these people that are oppressing them, all these people that are against them, will one day get the judgment that they have earned, that they deserve. And there's going to be a setting things right, that they don't have to worry about it right now. And I think in their own minds, that would excite them. And they would want to do it by violent means uh, for these things to take place. Because when somebody's oppressing you, you kind of want what's coming to them to come quickly. That tends to be the, the attitude, the mood that we kind of uh, gravitate towards. And so what God is trying to do here, I believe, is comfort the people and saying, don't worry about the opposition. Just keep going the way you're going. Just keep laboring. Just keep going. I'm going to take care of everything. And that's the, the hardest thing as a believer to do, uh, to keep laboring for something that is yet future something you will never see here on this earth, something that is uh, being stored up for us in heaven. It's, it's, it's extremely difficult. So what we have here in verse 1 of chapter 9, the burden of the Lord, word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust, and gold like the mire of the streets, behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Uh, these are all, as I said, a prophecy given against the lands directly surrounding Israel. 
So these would have been people in Syria, uh, in the northern area uh, outside of Israel, and they would have been strong seafaring people. That would have been their strength, and they were very wealthy. And so what happens is God says that he, they think that by building all these things, by having all this money, that they will escape the judgment of God. And I think sometimes, I know in my own life, I feel that way. If I just had a little bit more money, or if I just had a little bit more time, if I just had a little bit more protection, or whatever the case may be, then it would be better. And what we see is that the people that strive after those things, that do not strive after the things of God, ultimately face destruction. Because they've placed their faith and trust in something that's not of God. And so no matter how big their towers were, no matter how much gold and silver they had, it wasn't going to stop the judgment of God from coming. So this would have encouraged the, the children of Israel. They would have thought, good, you know, they're going to get what's coming to them. Then it continues, Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. These would have been Philistine cities. Uh, over here towards the east, uh, you would have had a group of people that had always been kind of a thorn in the side for the children of Israel. The Philistines were very proud people. Uh, they, they, were very, uh, they had their own religion, they had their own culture, they had their own way of life, and they were a power, in a sense, militarily, and they were able to put pressure on the children of Israel. And so what's basically saying is, the people in the Philistines are going to see what's being done in Syria, Tyre and Sidon and all these other places, and they're going to grow fearful because they realize that judgment is coming to them as well. All of these things they thought they were going to escape, it's going to turn out just like what happened in Syria. The difference is they're able to kind of adapt. So in verse 6, it says, A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God. So we have this uh, prophetic giving here that though he's going to cut off the pride of the Philistines, and a mixed race is going to come in there and settle there, and they're actually going to be believers in God. They're actually going to be followers of the one true God. This is something that would have been uh, completely foreign to the children of Israel. Uh, they would have been asking questions. How do they have the right? Uh, what are they doing? They have no place in any of our covenants. You would have seen the same uh, repulsion the Jews had for the Gentiles in this case here. Uh, they, would have been, they would have read this and not wanted to talk about it. It just would have been something that this is going to take place. And then it says, And shall be like a leader in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite, I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. There's something we can understand given that we have the historical record of what took place in this area in between these time periods. We know that in hundred or so years, Alexander the Great is going to come and he is going to conquer this entire area. And he's going to destroy all these cities. The only one he doesn't destroy is Israel. Why? Because God said that it wouldn't happen. 
we have here all of these cities Alexander the Great conquered uh, very swiftly uh, with, with not really any issues. And when he gets to Israel, the high priest, this is uh, uh, history uh, as, as legend uh, uh, gives it, so take it with a grain of salt. But the historical record says that Alexander the Great basically tells Israel to surrender. I'm coming, you know, surrender to me, pay what you're going to pay to, because right now they're paying uh, the Persians. Israel is under the Persian rule. They're, pay, they're sending money back to Persia. And Alexander the Great is saying, just stop sending the money to them and start sending it to me and we'll, we'll call it all good. And the high priest says, no, not going to happen. So Alexander the Great, I would assume, is thinking, I'm being very generous here and saying I'm going to spare all of these people if they would just do the same thing they're doing for the Persians and send it to me. And then they say, no, you can imagine how uh, frustrated he would be. So he comes in, and as he's coming in, he had a couple other things to conquer. As he makes his way there, history goes that he sees a vision of this high priest that comes out and what he's wearing, what he's got, and the word of God that he brings. And Alexander the Great kneels before this high priest and says, we won't destroy the city, which would have been an extremely unusual thing. Uh, so here we have the coming king, in a sense, worldly king, with all of his armies, with all of his armament coming in. It would have been a very grand gesture. It would have been something to, to behold. But we have the fact that Israel was not destroyed. Alexander the Great dies, and the kingdom is divided into four sections. The Ptolemies in Egypt actually have reign over Israel, but they, they don't keep it for very long. Uh, Antiochus III from Syria, the northern area, comes and takes Israel, and Antiochus is ruling Israel. And that's when we have this time of Judas Maccabeus, the rebellion, uh, this thing of Hanukkah that the, they celebrate uh, would have taken place at that time and they would have taken back and they would have had rule for a very short period of time before the, the Romans came. So in all this period, all of these wars going on, all of these battles, Israel was not destroyed one time, which is remarkable. Changed hands that many different times. No matter who was coming through, who was passing through, who was returning, God was encamped around the children of Israel and they weren't destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem has been destroyed a number of times. They've been besieged a number of times. But when God made this statement, it didn't happen because he was encamped around it. So this is something that he's basically saying, the opposition is still going to be there, but you're just going to have to trust me. You're just going to have to trust that I'm encamped around you. You're just going to have to trust that I'm not going to let this city be taken. Uh, with our own lives, do we trust him? We trust him for salvation. We trust that when we get to heaven, when we close our eyes here on earth and we open them, that we will be in the presence of Lord in heaven. That's what we trust. But when the day-to-day -day and the opposition is coming against us, do we trust that even though we're suffering, even though we're, we're trying to endure, even though we're trying to do what he's asked us to do, that that's all going to be taken care of at a future time? This week was a complete failure for me. And it's okay if it was a failure for you too. But we've come today to be reminded that God is encamped around us and that he is going to take care of us. There's nothing that the world can do. There's nothing that anyone can do to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And I think 
that encouragement, if that was at the forefront of our minds, would help us to get through these tough weeks. So this is what's said. He's encamped around them. When we envision, now try to use your imagination. Think back to when you were a child and you were playing make-believe. You are a king or queen, whatever you like. You're a king or a queen. And you have all the power to make peace. You come with perfect justice, and you are coming to a group of people that you are going to make everything right for. All of their hopes, all of their dreams, all of their desires, you are able to provide. You have the resources to make this happen. How would you enter into that kingdom? How would you present yourself to them? Because what we have in this next verse is how the Lord Jesus, who is all of those things, truly, how he presented himself to the people. And I don't think in our imagination we would have done the same. So here we have it, the verse that probably everyone knows from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'm not sure, but I doubt that picture was what you had in mind as you were imagining coming into your kingdom. What we have here is not a warrior, per se, that's coming into a kingdom, but a, a lowly man. Lowly, even though he is just, even though he has salvation, he is coming in a lowly manner. So try to apply it to our own lives. When we're in situations at home, at work, with neighbors, with friends, with family, no matter what the circumstances, when we're holding all the cards, when we kind of have the power to dictate how things are going to go, how do we act? My grandpa used to say, you can always tell a real pro when he's got all the cards. So if I have the power to do something to someone at work or, or in, in business, do I just lord it over them and pound it into the ground and basically bury the person? Or do I come in a lowly manner? Because if you came in a lowly manner, that would shock people. And I think this is what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to be a shocking thing. It's, it's not supposed to be the obvious. We would expect somebody with that type of power to come in a very grand way. But we see that when the Lord Jesus came, he came exactly as it said he would, in a very lowly manner, riding on a donkey, a colt full of a donkey. We have this idea here that in the manner that he was to come, it was going to stand out so brightly that they should have recognized it immediately. And we see that when he did make his entrance, there was a big to-do about it. And then he gets to the temple and then nothing happens. And he takes it as the final decision from the children of Israel that he's been rejected. And he leaves. So this is that verse. In verse 10, we have immediately after this idea of reigning and glory and power. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That phrase there, from sea to sea and from the rivers to the end of the earth, uh, is, comes up again in Psalm 72, verse 8. It's a, it's a great psalm, and it fits in 
perfectly with what's being said here. But we see that uh, the way that God has chosen to say it matches up perfectly with the, another psalm in the scripture that we can go to, but we're not going to today. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the, and the horse from Jerusalem. Why mention these two? Why do these two get called out? You have Ephraim, that's a tribe. You have Jerusalem, that's a city. It seems strange, the, the two comparisons. And what I think we have here is Ephraim would have been a far north city in Israel, and you have Jerusalem, which would have been in the south. And so basically we have a Lord saying here that the entire nation is going to be together. This isn't just, uh, just for a certain group of children of Israel, but the entire nation, the 12 tribes. So I think that's what's uh, in view here. And the idea that he's taking away all of their weapons, their means to destroy, their means to have power, because there's going to be peace. Um, when you look at the world today, there's a lot of people that say they want peace. And one of the, 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 the only reason we can have peace is if there's adequate resources, basically, to maintain it. Um, the Lord is the only one with the adequate, adequate resources to bring peace. He brings peace with people. He brings peace with God because he's perfectly just and he has salvation. This is something he's able to do. Uh, in the world today, there, there's a saying that there is enough food to feed everybody in the world. And there's enough water for everybody to drink in the world. But we have this thing where we like to hoard and we like to build for ourselves. It's a selfish nature that we have where we don't like sharing. Uh, when Noah goes over to uh, any of the other kids' houses, um, one of the things that we are really working on is this idea of sharing and trying to teach them that it's actually profitable to share because you can give someone something that you have and then you can have something that they have. And there's this... Uh, union between the two of you and you actually grow your your wealth and it all makes sense logically but when it comes to our selfish passion it doesn't matter what's mine is mine and I'm going to take it and I'll take his too if he's not looking and so that's that's kind of the attitude that we have and that's why we'll never have peace um, and I think in this verse here what the children of Israel were looking for was peace uh, they were tired of the oppression and I think we can all sharing that sentiment. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of running into people that hate the Lord. I'm, I'm tired of running into people that put him down. I'm tired of running into people that have nothing nice to say. And you just feel like, you just get tired. And you just feel like, I just want to be done with this. And I think in this case here, these people would have been tired of this oppression and they would have been looking for the Lord to come right now. Just come right now. Just do it all right now. Just come and set up the kingdom. We're all ready for you. But we see that there's something that the Lord is doing with the rest of the world and that it's not yet time. So though it would have encouraged them to know that one day this is what it will be like, they still had the struggles of daily life to deal with, that he, it, it wasn't going to happen at the current moment. And I think ourselves, there's so many believers out there today that are looking to a presidential candidate, that are looking to a political party that's somehow going to solve the problems that you have in your day-to-day -day life. It's just not going to happen. Uh, we have it from Scripture that, that it's not going to happen until the Lord is here. And when the Lord comes back, we won't be here. Uh, we'll be coming with him. So in a sense, don't look for it now. So we have here in verse 11, he says, as for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. 
Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. Um, why do they get double? Uh, they get double because they're the firstborn. And in the children of Israel tradition, the firstborn gets a double portion. So Israel being the firstborn gets double blessing. Uh, we have this idea here, uh, because of the blood of your covenant, it doesn't specify which covenant, so we have to make uh, some assumption, and we're going to assume that it's the Abrahamic covenant. And because of that covenant, he says, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And I don't know about you, but this reminds me of uh, Joseph uh, being in prison, being in the pit, and then God coming and restoring him, bringing him out of it, and setting him in a place where he has the ability to uh, kind of have authority and rule. It says, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. In the sense, uh, don't be a prisoner of hope and just uh, sit there and wait for the coming of the Lord is kind of how I take it. Uh, I may be wrong, and that's, that's okay. But this idea of sometimes we have a hope for the, the, the coming of the, of the Lord in such a way that, you know, you see people all the time uh, make predictions of when the Lord is coming. And then they say, you know, so sell all your stuff and send the money to me, and we're going to go off into a mountain, and we're going to wait for the Lord. And then the Lord doesn't come, and the guy has all the money, and he says, you know, oh, my bad, you know, sorry about that type of thing. So what we have here, I think, is this idea of return to the stronghold. Uh, get ready to, to, to do battle, in a sense, or to hold the fort. Uh, this is, don't be a, a just sitting around doing nothing. Return to the stronghold. He's telling him he's going to restore double. It says, For I have bent you to my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Um, it mentions Greece here. The, the word actually can be applied all the way back to Genesis when it talks about uh, just kind of like an unknown region. So, it's used of Greece in like Daniel and things like that. So it uh, could mean Greece specifically, or it could mean just uh, unknown regions. Bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim. Again, we have the north and the south being uh, represented here. Made you like the sword of a mighty man. It says, then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. Again, we have a promise from God that this is what's going to happen. Uh, this can be applied, in a sense, to the many times that uh, God spared them in these next couple hundred years against all these powers that are making way. But when we see the phrase, in that day, uh, it gives kind of glimpse to the, the tribulation and that period of time. So in that day, we know that the Lord comes back and the entire remnant that is still alive will be saved. He will come back and he will save them. Uh, we're going to break into chapter 10 real quick. Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain. Grace, 
grass in the field for everyone. For the idols speak delusion, the diviners envision lies, and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain, therefore the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. In this case here, the Lord is asking the children of Israel not to look to idols, not to look to things that have dealt falsely with them. He's telling them, ask the Lord for rain. So to me, this is the most applicable portion of the text to us. When we have struggles, when we have difficulties, when we face hardship, when we want to know what to do, do we go to the Lord first? You see so many people that have so many self-help books and so many how to do this and how to do that. And when you're, you're, I struggle with this personally, even like in something like business, do you just ask the Lord to provide? And then you just keep working and you watch the Lord provide? That just seems too simple. It just seems too easy. It seems like it would be harder than that. Or why would the Lord be interested in my monetary well-being? Um, well, it's because he cares. It's because he's a, a great God. It's because he's a loving God. And I think in this case here, if you would have told the children of Israel this, ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain, the Lord will make flashing clouds, he will give them showers of rain. They would have said, well, that's it. We just ask and then the rain comes. It would have been a kind of a shocking thing. You know, they've been waiting for rain in the latter time all this time and they realized all they had to do was ask. For the idols speak delusion, the diviners envision lies and tell false dreams, they comfort in vain. It's not that the, the false things that we run to aren't comforting. They are comforting, but they comfort in vain. Uh, when you think of people that are, are uh, stressed about certain things, um, tendency is for to turn to things like alcohol, like drugs, like uh, trying to get away from um, the duties of family life. There's so many things that people will turn away from because of stress from work or stress in daily life. And I think here this idea is they go to something that's going to provide them comfort here and now. Just take away the pain right now, and that way I'll, I'll feel better. And basically he's saying you'll feel better just at the moment, but it's comforting you in vain. So in our own in our own lives, thinking over the past week, the past month, whatever you want to go, however far you want to go back, when you face those times of struggle, um, spiritually or just in your own personal work life, uh, where did you go? What did you turn to? Was the immediate response just to take a second and kneel down and pray? Was it to consult the word of God to see, okay, Lord, this is what I'm going through. What would you have me to do? How would you have me to act? I think we have an opportunity, unlike those throughout the past generations, we have the word of God so close to us, uh, the ability to just turn to the word and seek an answer from the Lord. Uh, the question is, when those moments come, what do we turn to and why do we turn to them? And will we be willing to change and to turn back to the Lord? Because the Lord here uh, makes it clear he's ready to bless. Um, he's ready to provide. And all we have to do is ask. And what troubles him so much, it says, therefore the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. 
we have a shepherd. We have a great shepherd that loves us, that cares for us, that wants to lead us through every aspect of our life. He is tender. He is caring. And he wants nothing but the best for us. We are not like these people to be wandering around with no shepherd. And I, that's, that's probably the, the biggest thing that I take away uh, from this portion. Uh, the Lord was so upset because these people didn't have any guidance, didn't have anything to turn to. And as, we con- as this prophecy continues, we see that because of that, they were led to false things. So if we ignore uh, the shepherd's guiding in our own life, we're going to be led away to false things. It's just a, a matter of time until we find ourselves in an open field not knowing where we're at, not knowing where to go. So I would encourage you all this week uh, just to consider these things. Uh, we're we're going to stop here because the next portion is another eight verses, um, and we'll, we'll get back to it the next time, uh, Lord willing. But this idea here that when we have these times of struggle, when we have these worries or cares, to lay them all on the Lord because the Lord is able to bear them and the Lord is ready to bless. And in these times, to think of the glory that will come, that it would encourage us to endure while we're here. I know that um, it's not the easiest thing to, when you're going through struggles, uh, to think, well, it's all going to be good, you know, a thousand years from now, nobody's going to care about this. It's going to be great. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a hard mindset to take when, when things are going wrong. But that's, the, the, that's what the Lord gives the people here, and uh, that's what I believe he gives us on a day-to-day basis. So uh, let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee that You uh, care for us in such a way uh, that You do provide for us. We pray that we would uh, humbly lay all of our worries and stresses at Your feet. We pray that in all of these things we would see the glory of the Lord and how He came as just a a lowly man. Uh, Father, we think of the way the Lord entered and how You would have us to act. We pray that we would have that same character, that in times when we do have Uh, certain power, certain authority that we would act uh, in a lowly way, in a meek way. Uh, We do pray for the rest of the week, Father, that in these times of struggles we would uh, come to you, uh, that we would seek to live a life that is pleasing to you, and that we would seek to encourage our brothers and sisters here. Uh, For we're, we're, we're all in this together, and Father, we're thankful for the family that we have in Christ. We just pray that we would uh, have this week be an improvement and that we would uh, grow spiritually uh, more in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.